we are we're in a a series, and 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 I, I say we're in a series. Really, uh, for me, it, it may be a series for you. For me, it is it is a a boiling out of what's seething in my spirit. Let me put it that way. Uh, so I, I, I guess we can call it a series, but but we're 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 talking about renew, spiritual renewal, spiritual revival, and 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 we're calling it saturated with the presence of God. And and we've we've introduced it, we've we've tried to define it a little bit. And and what you're going to find every week is that we may define it a little bit more. But most of the time, we're going to just describe it, okay? Because that's really every definition turns into a description, basically. But revival or renewal, uh, never simply happen by chance or by accident. Now, it, sometimes it may seem that way, but it's not by chance, it's not by accident. And it's not something that we as the body of Christ, we as the church decide we're going to do, okay? We can decide to have meetings, but we don't decide when and where and how God shows up. God decides that. Uh, there, there's a... a a famous pastor, preacher of the of the 20th century. Some of you might be familiar with him. His name is, is Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you've never read anything by Martin Lloyd-Jones, I encourage you to, to grab hold of, uh, of his books. He was a pastor in England, pastored one of the, the most famous churches there. But in speaking of revival, this is what Dr. Lloyd-Jones says. He said, it is something that is done to the church. It's something that happens to the church. The essence of revival is that the Holy Spirit comes down on a number of people together, upon a whole church, upon a number of churches, districts, or perhaps even a whole country. It's a visitation of the Holy Spirit or an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a baptism, an outpouring, a visitation. And the effect of that is that they immediately become aware of His presence and of His power in a manner that they have never known. The Holy Spirit literally seems to be presiding over the meeting and taking charge of it and manifesting His power and guiding them and leading them and directing them. And then He says this, that is the essence of revival. I want to say this again, we don't decide when revival comes. We can't compel it, okay? We can't coerce it. We can't make it happen. It's a, it's a sovereign work of God, but we can prepare for it, okay? We can prepare for it. If, if we do nothing, and I've learned this uh, in a lot of different areas in my life, if we do nothing, we don't have to worry. It won't come, all right? It won't come. And so what we have to do is, is we are responsible to prepare. But, but here's the beauty of this. In knowing and understanding and walking out the promises of God, uh, it becomes critically important, us to, important to us to obey what God has said. We can walk those promises out. And whenever God makes us a promise, and God often does this, the, the scriptures are filled with God's promises. Some of them I don't know if you're aware of this, but some of them are unconditional. And by that, I mean, there's nothing that anybody has to do. God says, I'm going to make this happen. It's dependent upon me. 
But then there are some, and many of the passages of Scripture, and some of them that are so uh, that are so memorable that we quote to one another, that we often pray. They're not conditional. I mean, they're not they're not unconditional. They're conditional. And by conditional, here's what that means. It means that we are responsible to do certain things that God's told us to do. In other words, we are responsible to obey. And when we obey, God is responsible to bring forth the promise. And listen to me, I've learned this in my life. God never lies. God always keeps his words. And and so though revival is a sovereign work of God, it's something he chooses to do when and, and where and with who he chooses to do it. There are some conditional promises. There is one particular one that we're going to look at this morning and over the next three or four weeks because I think there's some, some very important things there. there there's an, a conditional promise that's found in Scripture that if, it, if we obey it, then it prepares the field that is our lives. And it certainly, if nothing else, it will attack the presence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, if we do our part, God will do His. If we do our part, God will take care of His part. Now this passage that that I'm going to share is very familiar. and, And the reality of it is we quote it all the time. The major problem with this passage is we never get around to doing it. We, we, don't, we don't focus in on the obedient aspect of it. Listen, it's not enough to know something or say something or to pray something or to wear it on a t-shirt or have it on a bumper sticker. We have to obey it. And we have to obey it in totality. This verse, this passage is God's condition for the promise. And He will only fulfill it if we obey it. So let's, let's look at this passage. We're going to have it up on the screens. It's a very familiar one. It's, it's 2 Chronicles 7 to 14. Now, before I read this, there are tons of commentators that say this does not apply to the church today. Okay? Well, God bless them. They'll probably never see it. All right? Here's my belief that if it's in this book... At least in principle, it still applies, all right? If it's in this book, now I realize there are, there are specific promises that were in the very, uh, very specific context. But here's what I do know, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he grafted those of us who were not part of the people into God, of God into the tree, which is the people of God. Therefore, their promises become our promises. This is a promise that God gave Solomon after, after his glory came and it rested on the temple. This is a promise that I believe that in principle, if we obey, you know what? God will bless us. He will bless the person that obeys it. He will bless the people that obeys it. He will bless the nation that obeys it. Okay? I don't know how many have to obey it, before the nation gets it. But I'll tell you this, if the church in America would would get down on her knees, not stand up, but get down on her knees and really do this, things would change in our country. Now, I'm not here this morning to preach on politics, okay? Uh, I, I'm here to, to just, just to share the promise 
and to encourage you in one of the aspects this morning. We'll look over the next three weeks. After today, we'll look at the other three. But this is what the passage says in Second Chronicles seven fourteen. It says, and my people, and some translations will have, if my people, but and my people, if means it's conditioned, all right? If you ever read a promise God gives and it has an if in front of it, you can just mark that one down. This requires something of me. And so it says, and if, or or if my people, or and, depending on what translation you've got, and my people who are called by my name, those that have my name called over them. That's literally what the Hebrew means. Those that, that I call my name over. Jesus Christ calls his name over the church. We are called by the name of God. We belong to God. We hadn't called ourselves this. He has. He says, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. There's four things there. We're going to just look at one of them today, okay? But, But there's four things there. If we will do each one of them, and it's interesting, each one of them brings forth the next one. And if the one before it doesn't happen, guess what? The one after it rarely happens. But ultimately, when all four of them fall into place, this is what God says. He doesn't say if. He says then. Then. I will. I will hear from heaven. In other words, you'll have my attention. I will forgive their sin. In other words, I will will deal with the issues that separate me from you, and I will heal their land. I will make their land blossom like I will make their lives blossom. How many of you ever heard this passage? It's not new to you, right? Okay. How many of you have memorized this passage? How many of you have prayed this passage? How many of you are obeying this passage? See, that's the question. How many of us will obey this passage? Listen, you and I can't make the wind blow, right? But you know what? If I want to sail on the lake, I can run the sail up and sit in my boat and get ready, can I? Because if I don't prepare myself for the wind that will eventually come, I will never sail. The same is true in preparing to meet with God. If we don't prepare ourselves, we won't be ready. Listen, God, it's not if God's going to send revival. God is sending revival, okay? It's happening. If you don't think so, read wider than the Birmingham News, all right? Read wider than the Washington Post. Read wider than the New York Times. God is sending revival across this world. It's it's flaming like a forest fire, fire. And so it's not if God will send, it's, it, it's, it's when will the breeze blow? You see, very often the breeze of God blows gently first. But a lot of times it blows right through a church or a people because there's no sails up. There's nothing to intercept it. 
Here's what I've learned about God. God won't waste His grace on somebody that is not ready to receive it. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't give grace. I'm just saying He won't pour it out on us if we are going to waste it. And if we don't have ourselves up, if we're not prepared, it's a waste. It's like pouring water into buckets, a bucket with a hole in it. God never wastes anything. And so if, if we're going to make sure, we've got to make sure we understand what God expects and not just know what He expects, but actually put it into practice and, and learn how to prepare for the wind of the Spirit when God chooses to pour Him out. You see, according to this verse, and I believe according to the history of renewal and revival throughout the, the people of God and throughout the, the body of Christ, revival or spiritual renewal is born in humility. That's a word most of us don't really like. Okay? I mean, let's just be honest with it. For most People, humility is, a, is sort of a sign of weakness, but it is the cradle of every revival that has ever taken place. And, and the humility I'm talking about is not the result of God humbling us or some other person humbling us or some influence humbling us. It, it's, it's I have to humble myself. Or humble myself. I may say the word 15 different ways, but you know what I'm talking about, right? We have to humble ourselves. We have to humble uh, one, I mean, we don't humble one another. We humble ourselves. And we do it before Almighty God. So, so what, does, what does this word mean? What does it denote? What's God saying here? Well, I want to give you a picture of what the word humble means in Hebrew. Okay, because I, for me, it is a graphic expression of what God expects, not just from our physical bodies, but also from our soul and from our spirit. The word humble means to bend down, but it doesn't just mean to bend down on one knee. It means to bend on down on both knees. And then when you get both knees flat, it means to just lay out like this. And just, and just prostrate yourself. Mm. 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 This is not a position most of us like to get in. Can I just tell you something? This is about as relaxed as it gets. <laughs> you know what? Nothing's dependent on me. And everything is dependent on God. When he tells us to humble ourselves, that word means to go low. And here's, here's what I'm learning is the lower I go, the more room there is to go lower and lower. But I have to bend my knee first. And that, now that's a physical picture, but, but that's also a spiritual picture. 
It, it, it means to bow down on the floor. It means to go low until you are totally prostrate, until you are bent down completely, till you fully comprehend who God is and who you are. I, it, I always find it amazing in Scripture that when God shows up, everybody hits the floor. This morning, I, I was sitting over here and, and I was preparing and I, I, was, I was reading over the verse from 2 Chronicles 7.14. It's interesting, if I go right across the page into 7.1, it says, Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of God fills the house. And the priest couldn't enter in the house of the Lord because the glory of God had filled the, the Lord's house. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. 7-1 through 7-3. Uh, they bowed down. They were in awe. They realized, wow, there's somebody here who's more powerful than I am. I give up. They went prostrate. It means to assume the proper position of reverence and lowliness. To give God His, his glory, to give Him His due, to give Him His, his proper place, and, and to assume our proper place before Him. You see, humility has to become that hidden state of our heart before it will ever become apparent in, in our actions or our words. If I'm not humble in spirit, I won't be humble in person. Now, I can fake it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I can fake it, but if it's not real, it, it, won't, it won't remain. Humility is, is really, and I want to I camp out here a few minutes, humility is really the natural reaction when you and I truly understand grace. Well, we love grace, right? I mean, we're grace people. We're New Testament people. We love grace. But, and, and, and we all know the definition of grace. Grace is the undeserved and, and the unearned favor of God. It, it's literally the kindness of God poured out on us at the expense of Christ, at, of His broken body and His spilled blood. Grace is, is something that we, as we will say over and over, it can't be bought. Well, listen, it can't be bartered for either, and it can't be bargained for. It, it's not earned. It's impossible to earn. It's a gift that God gives us. But with the problem sometimes with believers and with grace is we don't really understand it. We can define it. We, we understand the words, but it hasn't moved from here. To hear. We, ha we haven't realized deep, deep within us that we truly need it. And so what happens is very often we embrace a cheap kind of grace. Y'all know what I'm talking about? It's the kind that, that, that guarantees our forgiveness whether or not we forsake our sin. And too many believers have embraced a cheap grace that, 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 that gives them reward without them taking responsibility for their actions. 
In other words, you know what? I can live like hell all week long as long as I'm at church on Sunday morning. Or as long as I pray a prayer, God forgive me for all my sins. I'm not sure when we pray that prayer, God actually does that. All right, now that may mess your theology up. If that does, okay, let me explain what I mean. We didn't sin those sins in bunches. And I'm not sure we can repent of them in bunches. We can't just, God, I know I've, you know, it's, it's been a pretty hard week and, and I hadn't been the best and, and just forgive me for them. That's not a lot of thought. That's not a lot of confronting what my responsibility is. You see, God's Word tells us that if we will confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive them. That means confessing does not mean, Lord, just forgive me. I've sinned this week. No, that means, God, I did this. And you say this is sin. I agree with you. Forgive me. You see, I have to come to grips with who I am and what I've done. And too often we, we embrace this grace. That, and, and listen, we embrace it because sometimes we've been taught this, that if you'll just ask God to forgive you, he'll, he'll forgive you. Well, for a lot of us that means, well, let's just bunch it all together and we'll do this once every once in a while and, and everything will be good. That's not what Scripture teaches We can't live like we want to live and then say a little prayer on Saturday night before we go to bed and come to to worship and expect to even worship, much less encounter God. Folks, this has to get real. We have to humble ourselves and, and take responsibility for it. There are too many people that have embraced this kind of grace and what happens is they begin to believe they deserve that. And when you believe you deserve something, you know what happens? Entitlement takes over. And entitlement in the church is killing her. And what happens when you feel entitled, then there's this false, that false sense of grace morphs into pride rather than humility. It breeds this haughty, unbending, stiff-necked form of pride too. And listen, just just to remind you what God says in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, if, if I'm not humble, if I'm not, if, I, if, I'm not, if I'm not going as low as I can go, guess what happens? I'm in opposition to God. My position and his position are diametrically opposed. All of you know this passage out of, of Proverbs, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You see, pride says, I deserve it. I belong to Jesus. He died for me. Therefore, I deserve this. That mindset is really this. You know what? God's lucky to have somebody as magnificent as I am. I'm so wonderful, aren't I, God? I'm not like the rest of you kids. I'm kind of a step above. Folks, pride is self-deception. 
And it's self-deception at its uttermost. That's why much of the church today is in trouble because most believers have embraced a grace that simply does not exist. It's based in their own goodness and their own self-reliance. It's a pseudo-grace that's kind of wrapped up in wolf's clothing. All right, it, it's, a, it's a demonic grace that masquerades itself as life, but it delivers bondage. Listen, pride is a false, a false sense of security in who I am rather than who God is. And that false sense of security will never bend its knee. It will never bend its knee. It will never get prostrate because it does not believe it deserves anything but grace. You say, well, Nelson, where in the world do we have that? We have that everywhere. It's, it's like a cancer. It's like a poison. And folks, that's why God says that the people over whom he calls his, his people, the ones who have their, his name called over them, are supposed to humble themselves. You know what happened in the Old Testament? God gave the Israelites the law. He gave them clear directions about how he expected them to behave. The law was never to be worshipped. It was never to become their God. It was never to drive their life. It was simply to show them that they were sinners. And apart from God... They had no hope. It was to drive them to their knees. To to they were prostrate on the floor, realizing that, God, I have no hope. I have a disease that I can't cure. And it's a spiritual disease. And unless you come through for me, I'm done. And yet, they lost that idea. And instead of it being about God, it became about keeping rules and regulations. Don't tell me it can't happen to the church. I grew up in that church. Okay? I grew up in that system that said the same thing. If you do this, and you do this, and you do this, you're okay with God. The only problem was, I knew I wasn't okay with God, and he certainly knew I wasn't. Besides that, I couldn't even keep them. And so what happened is, I, I embraced that grace, that false sense of grace. That's not the grace Jesus died for. That's a false scent. Jesus never said, blessed are the prideful, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That word poor in spirit means those who humble themselves and realize their own spiritual bankruptcy. Those who understand who God is and who we are. And the, 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 the vast gulf between. He, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he says this, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, our spiritual altitude, how high we soar, is ultimately determined by our spiritual attitude, beginning with our assessment of who we are in light of God. We cannot go anywhere until we have the right assessment of our condition. I can't progress in in growth with God until I realize I am poor in spirit and I humble myself. You see, God 
is sovereign. God is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the, he's the ultimate in totality, okay? He is fully in control, and he's preeminent in power, yet pride whispers to us, God needs you. It was a watershed day for me when I realized God did not need me at all. He wants me. God needs nothing, folks. Nothing. Not anything. But God created us and invited us into relationship with Him. God was in perfect relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit were a community. And they, 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 they never had a disagreement. It was always, everything flowed wonderfully, and it flowed through each one of them, and they had their responsibilities, and they took care of them. But He creates us and invites us into that community. I don't get into that community because of who I am or what I've done. I couldn't even create me. So I couldn't even come into existence without Him. How amazing it is that the Creator of the universe, the Sovereign King of glory, would want me to come into His presence. See, when that dawns on us, then we are beginning to grasp grace. And then when we, we look at the cross and we back off from it and we sit down and we, we stop thinking about how much God loves me and realize how angry God was and that He was willing to take out His anger on the object of His heart rather than on the object that created that anger, then I'm beginning to grasp grace. And then... I should be able to see the great love that's there. You see, grace is important, and if we understand it, it push, it's like having a weight on our back, and it pushes our face into the ground. It does not cause us to rise up and, and stick our fingers under our suspenders and throw out our chest and think how awesome I really am. No, it drives us into the ground, into the dust from where we came, folks. True humility, the kind that draws God's presence, always finds its way to go lower in His presence. I love John the Baptist. John the Baptist is, is what, uh, uh, he, he's the last Old Testament prophet. Now I realize he shows up in the New Testament, but he's the last in a long line of prophets who have been calling God's people back to them. I love John the Baptist. I mean, he, he's, a, he's a wild man, okay? I mean, he, he, he wears a camel, a, you know, camel skin, and I like the picture with the one where he's got this big old belt and he don't have a shirt on. He's got this camel skin skirt and he's got this beard out to here. He looks like one of the, uh, the Duck Dynasty guys, all right? I mean, that's, that's my picture of John the Baptist. And, and if he don't look that way when I get to heaven, somebody's probably going to have to introduce me to him. But, but that's my picture of John the Baptist. And John says, in just a few simple words, John expresses what I have spent the last 15 minutes with all the words I know trying to express. He says this in John chapter 
He says, He. And, and when he says He, he's referring to Jesus. He says, He must increase, and I, or but, I must decrease. I must go lower so that He might be raised higher. You see, when we make this move, it automatically lifts Jesus up. But until I humble myself, people can't see Jesus for me. And they can't see Him for you. But when I bow down, guess what they see? They begin to see Jesus. And so, in humility, the lower I'm willing to bow, the higher Jesus gets lifted up. And in the presence of Jesus, here's the wonderful thing. Everything changes. Spiritual life begins to flourish and and it begins to produce fruit and and God's glorified. and, And when God's glorified, God just dumps the bucket of the Holy Spirit over the place that's glorifying. And when the Holy Spirit's poured out, He comes like rain and He nourishes that that little plant that's bursting through the the ground. We've got a picture and I don't know, probably Tom can't get it up quick enough. I'm not wanting him to, but we've got a picture on this series of a, of a plant that's just sprouting. It's coming through the ground and there's water on it. That's the picture. Yeah, this is the picture. That's you and me when we get low enough. God just pours His Spirit out and what happens is that that plant begins to produce and it grows into maturity and it begins to, to reproduce and, and, to, and to put on fruit. And it begins to germinate. That's why God calls for humility first. Because without humility, nothing else takes place without a deep realization of who we are, who we truly are, without coming to grips with our utter helplessness. And, 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 and folks, owning it. That's, that's the key. I have to own it. I have to accept this is me regardless of who I want to be, who I think I am. This is me oh god help me that's reality we have to own it and when we own it unless we own it we won't pray we really won't pray we won't seek after god and we certainly won't repent and we won't and if we don't do those things ultimately if we don't repent we don't find our way back to god We stay out there where we are. Instead, what happens is we systematically kind of lull ourselves to sleep and we smother spiritually from the plastic bag that pride stretches over our head and we smother ourselves to death. And we just go through the motions. Listen, God says get lower. Humble yourselves. There's a young man, and I'm going to share his name in a moment, but some of you have heard of him. Uh, At the age of 12, he began to to desperately seek after the Holy Spirit. His name was Evan Roberts. Y'all ever heard that name? Evan Roberts. Few of you have. Evan Roberts was a a young man who grew up in Wales. And, and, and he, he, he hungered for the Holy Spirit. And, and he continued to seek after him and seek after him. He couldn't find any rest. He couldn't find any relief. Uh, he, he, was, he, was, he grew up in a place. Wales is, was, is known for its coal mines. Okay? Uh, any of you know where Newcastle is? Newcastle Mine was named for Newcastle Mines in Wales. All right? By the way, all these names that we love so much, they came from somewhere else. <laughs> 
All right, I'm just being honest with you. They did. But anyway, his father was a miner. His grandfather was a miner. So guess what? He became a miner. And, 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 and young Evans, uh, he, he continued to seek after God. He, he, recalls, he says he recalls moments when, the, when God spoke directly to his heart and, and moments of indescribable presence and in, 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 in joy in God's presence. And, and he began to pray for revival, but for some reason he couldn't find any lasting joy. He couldn't find any lasting peace. And so he, he realized, you know what, I need to, to stop being a minor and I need to go to Bible college. And so he goes off to Bible college in Newcastle, England. Okay, there's where Newcastle came from. But in his studies, in his, his pursuit of learning about God, he realizes, I don't really know God. This happens, he's 25 years old. He's been pursuing God for 12, 13 years. And all of a sudden, in 1904, a young evangelist comes through. His name is Seth Joshua. And Joshua begins to preach and Evan starts going to these meetings faithfully every night. And one Tuesday night as he was silently praying prior to the meeting, he asked the father where the devil was in his life. And he realized that his own heart was cold. Roberts says that he could look at Christ on the cross and have no feeling whatsoever. And he began to weep for his hardness. But he couldn't weep for Jesus. And he realized that he loved the Father. And he loved the Spirit. But he didn't really love Christ. And the week continued. And he continued to cry out. And on Thursday evening, everything changes in his life. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share the words of Evan Roberts because they're powerful. And I'm, I think Tom's got them and you'll see them on the screen. He says, on the way to the 9 o'clock meeting, the Rev. Reverend Seth, Robert, Seth Joshua remarked, we are going to have a wonderful meeting today. To this I replied, I feel myself almost bursting. And then he says this, the meeting having been opened was handed over to the Spirit. And I was conscious that I would have to pray at some point. As one and the other prayed, I put the question to the Spirit, Shall I pray now? Wait a while, said he. When others pray, prayed, I felt a living force come into my bosom. It, it held my, my breath and my legs shivered. And after every prayer, I asked, Shall I now? Shall I now? And the living force grew strong, grew and grew, and I was almost bursting. And instantly, someone ended his prayer, my bosom boiling, and I would have burst if I had not prayed. What bold was that verse, God commending his love. And I fell on my knees with my arms over the seat in front of me, and tears and perspiration flowed freely. I thought blood was gushing forth. Miss Davies and Mona and Miss, Miss Quay, or New Quay, came to wipe my face. On my right was Mag Phillips, and on my left was Maud Davies. For about two minutes, it was fearful. Now, I want you to listen, don't miss these words. And it was fearful. And I cried, Bend me, bend me, bend us. And then, oh, 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 oh. And Miss Davies said, Oh, wonderful grace. 
What bent me was God commending His love. And I didn't see anything in it to commend. After I was bent, a wave of peace came over me. And the audience sang, I hear thy welcome voice. And as they sang, I thought of bending at the judgment day. And I was filled with compassion for those who would be bent on that day. And I wept. And henceforth, this is what Robert, Evan Roberts said, the salvation of souls became the burden of my heart. From that time, I was on fire with the desire to go through all of Wales. And if it were possible, I was willing to pay God for allowing me to go. So what happened? What happened to this young man? Evan Roberts humbled himself with a simple whispered prayer of bend me. And you know what? God answered. God answered. I don't know if you know anything about the, the, the Welsh revival, but the Holy Spirit came. And by that I mean He came and the fire fell in Wales. In, in the first two months, 70,000 people were converted. And in just five months, 85,000 people were converted. In less than six months, 100,000 people were converted. And the revival didn't just stop in Wales. It made its way westward. It rolled across the United States and it really sat down and, and we'll talk about this more in a, in a week or two in a place called Azusa Street. And it didn't stop there. It kept going. It rolled across the ocean. It, but it started because one young man prayed, God bend me. And there's a story that comes out of this, uh, this revival that I, it, it always it grasps me. It just takes hold of me. My people were coal miners, okay, on both sides of my family. They, they've lived in the dark and, and dug coal for generations. My, great, my grandfather was a, a carpenter in the mine on my father's side. All my uncles worked in the mine. My father worked in the mines. He didn't work in them. He worked in a strip mine until the day he retired. On my mother's side, my grandfather was a coal miner. In the, in the deepest and the darkest minds before they had unions or anything. I can remember sitting around and listening to my grandfather tell the stories of how bad it was in the mines. All my uncles on my mother's side became coal miners. Some of my cousins became coal miners. I made a decision early on in life, I'm not going in there. I'm not doing that. But I, I, I have an affinity for this. G. Campbell Morgan. Have any of you ever heard of G. Campbell Morgan? Famous pastor. Famous preachers. Written commentaries. But he was a very prominent pastor of the time. He was, he was in a conversation later. After the revival had, had slowed down a little bit. He was talking to a guy that managed the mines. And this manager. This mine manager told Morgan. That the haulers who brought out the coal. On the, on the pony wagons or the, or the horse-drawn wagons. He told them a story about it. He said they were the worst of the worst. They were the lowest level of human being. And their, their, their ponies, they, they cursed them constantly and they kicked them constantly. And when the revival hit, that stopped. And the ponies didn't know what to do. They just stood frozen. 
They tap them with the, 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 the whip or the, the harnesses and the ponies would just look around like this, like I'm fixing to get kicked again, I'm fixing to get cursed again. There was such a change in those men that they stopped cursing. They stopped kicking and beating and abusing their animals. And the, the mines in Wales shut down for a little bit till they could retrain their ponies. That's what happens when God comes. They're, 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 he, he says this, Now the haulers can hardly persuade their horses to start working because there's no obscenity and no kicks. The horses didn't know what to do because God had totally changed the hearts of those drivers. And 20 years after this revival ended, 80% of those people were still involved in ministry. They were still involved in the churches. Why? Because one young man, one messed up coal miner, slash messed up Bible college student studying for the ministry, humbled himself and prayed, bend me, bend me, bend us. You know, this morning, I'm going to close with this. My prayer is, oh God, bend me. Bend me, bend me, bend us. And Lord, what you did in Wales, do it in this place again. In Jesus' name. For more information on Eagles Wing Church, visit our website at www.eagleswingchurch.org or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Eagles Wing Church. Thanks for listening and have a blessed week.